morning, my name is Wes McKay, and I'm the senior pastor here at Cross Point Baptist Church, and want to just offer and extend my welcome to you as well. I, I want to begin by just thanking Chance. Um, he has just fed us so well the past two weeks in preaching for us, and I am just so thankful for him and his family being here. Uh, they are a blessing to me and to our church body, and I'm just thankful that uh, God used Chance uh, to just open up God's Word, and I just feel refreshed and fed after hearing him preach the past two weeks. So. I hope that you extend your thankfulness to him as well in that. If you would, turn in your Bible, as uh, Pastor Chance said, to Exodus chapter 32. And once you arrive there, if you would uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading Exodus 32 and just the first 14 verses of Exodus 32. says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible mercy that we even see in this text today in Exodus 32, an undeserved mercy that we have received in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit at work in us, you would bring us to uh, repentance and confession of sin, God, and, and God, that we would come, just come before you offering ourselves, God, as a living sacrifice, Lord, because you truly are the only living God. Lord, there is nothing that can replace you, be substituted for you. And God, I pray that even in our text today, that you would expose the idols that are so deeply rooted in our hearts, God. The substitutes that we have for you that really can never satisfy. 
Lord, I pray, use your word by your spirit to bring us to a greater knowledge of you and a greater love for Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been on the highway and you're listening to your music, everything is going well, you're going 65, 70, kind of zoned out, and then you have to hit the brakes quickly? Because in Baton Rouge, for some reason, there's always going to be, uh, you know, a traffic stall. And you come to find out that there's no reason for the traffic stall. There's not a, been a wreck or anything. It's just a stall. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, right. But you come to a screeching halt, and it's like you hit a brick wall in some sense. And you're, you're kind of flabbergasted what's going on, what's happening, things like that. Well, this is kind of the feeling of Exodus 32. You know, we've been working through Exodus for many, many months now, and we've gotten kind of in a good pace and a good track where we just got out of the tabernacle instructions and construction. And so Israel's in a good pace with the Lord, walking with the Lord, have committed to Him and covenanted with Him. And then we get to Exodus 32, and it's like coming to a screeching halt, a hitting the brakes immediately. Israel has hit a brick wall, and it has to do with their, what we've already said, is their idolatry, their idolatry. And so the main point of our, the, our text today is this, and I'm just going to go ahead and plagiarize. I'm telling you I'm plagiarizing somebody, but I'm plagiarizing the Apostle Paul. And he says about this, is this, Israel exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the Creator. That's what Israel's doing right now in Exodus 32. Paul go, goes ahead and gives us the commentary on Exodus 32. What Israel does is they exchange what is true and good and perfect and right about God, and they make it a lie, and they worship the things that they can make, and they serve the things that they can make, the creaturely things, rather than the one who made all things. That's what they're doing here in their idolatry in Exodus 32. So we're going to look at three points today in Exodus 32, 1 through 6. And they all start with a P. The people, the punishment, and the petition. And we'll look at all three of those things as they arrive in our text. The first point, just in the first six verses, is that we find out about this people, Israel, what they're truly like, what they're truly about, and just how fickle they really are. You know, in infidelity and sexual immorality and cheating on one's spouse is a huge issue and it's a it's it's significant it breaks families apart but just consider this uh, a person caught cheating on their spouse on their honeymoon there's just something specially just ridiculous about that right we just made vows we just covenanted with one another we just committed ourselves in a ceremony not many hours ago and you couldn't even stay committed to me for that long? We're on our honeymoon, for crying out loud, right? So infidelity and sexual immorality and cheating are significant issues, but there, there comes a point where it's even more significant when it's done so quickly like that. And that quick change of heart is something of what we get in Exodus 32 with Israel. They've just received the law. They've gotten all this from Moses. They've covenanted. So you will, you're going to be our God, and we're going to be your people. But look at the speed in which they give up on God here. God even says it in verse, in verse 8. 
they have turned aside quickly from me and all that I've commanded them. Just think about how God has shown His steadfast love and mercy to them thus far. God saved them out of Egypt. He sustained them in the wilderness, right? He rescued them. He covenanted with them at Sinai. He made them promises. And then He gave them all these instructions about how He will and can dwell among them in the tabernacle, right? This is the length to which God has gone gone to to demonstrate His love and care and affection for His people Israel, right? His commitment to them. But Israel made that commitment as well on the other side, just like spouses do. Made the commitment and it didn't take them long, not even days, to break that commitment and worship other things rather than God. Israel hasn't, this is where we begin in Exodus 32. Israel hasn't seen Moses for a little bit. He's gone up on the mountain to talk with God. Um, and they haven't seen him. He's kind of delayed and like, where, where is this man? He's left us. He's gone, right? And so when they realize that maybe Moses isn't coming back, they take matters into their own hands. In Moses' absence, Israel says, we need to make a God for ourselves. We need to make a physical representation of God for us. We need to make a statue, an idol, an icon for us to, so that we can say that we have God tangibly in our presence, right? This is what they do. They make an idol like all the other nations do, right? That's what other nations did in their time. Here's the problem with that I think that we can all see is, one, that God can't be made, right? I think we all learned that in children's you know, Bible study or VBS. God is not made. He has eternally existed for all time and will. And so he cannot be made, 1 Kings, 2 Kings 19, 17 through 18 says. And he can't be contained in a material object. This is what 1 Kings 8 says. Is that the heavens cannot contain you, O God. So how dare Israel say, let's put him in an object. Let's put him in a golden calf. That's how he will reside and dwell among us, in this golden statue. The other problem with this is that Israel is trying to be like all the other nations. They're saying, hey, look, Egypt, Canaan, Moab, the Ammonites. You know what's all similar about all those people? They have images of their God. They have images of them. Hey, we probably need to be like them, right? But this is what we already talked about. This is what it means to be holy. What it means to be holy is to be unlike everything else, unlike anyone else. And that's what God called them to be. To be holy because their God is holy, unlike anyone else. And so, Israel has given up really quickly and said, let's revert back to what we saw in Egypt. And look, a part of this problem, the reason that we have Exodus 32 right here is that, look, we just spent like 37 weeks in the tabernacle, right? We learned about, we learned about the materials for the tabernacle, the people who work in the tabernacle. We learned about the poles of acacia wood. We even learned about the priest underwear, right? Which I know was one of your favorites. And so we just spent many weeks on the tabernacle instructions about how God said he is going to dwell with them in this tabernacle, right? This is how God is going to live among them. And in a moment, when they see Moses not coming to their attention when they don't see him and have him and in a moment they say okay everything that we've had that we've been instructed to do no let's put that to the side we want God to dwell with us in this way among us in this way we want an idol 
We want to decide how God will dwell among us. So Israel in a moment, not seeing and not having patience, not waiting on Moses, say, everything we've received thus far, let's make our own judgment call. This is how we want God to dwell among us. Israel is trying to have God and call their own shots, right? And what I think we learn is this, church, is that we can disobey what God says and make a new religion, whatever it is, call Him Lord, and it's fine. That's what we think. We can disobey Him. We can disregard what He says. We can disregard His instructions. We can still say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, and it's fine. It's basically live how you want, sprinkle a little spirituality on top and call it Christian and it's okay. Let me just say, it's not okay. God's not okay with it here. God's not okay with Israel saying, yeah, Yahweh is our God, but we're going to decide how we worship Him and what we worship Him, what form He'll take for us. Look, church, the, one of the most dangerous things that we can do is say everything that God has said to us, you know what, it's negotiable, it's optionable, but we can still call ourselves Christian. You can't. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to say, I'm going to conform to what he said. And I don't get to call the shots. He do. He do. He do. (laughs) Right? He do. Thank you. He does. He does. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Either Jesus is Lord or he is not. And so what Israel does here is that they see that Moses hasn't come down. And so... They say Aaron. They go to Aaron, who, as we know, Aaron has a pivotal role in the life of Israel. He's kind of the line of the priesthood, right? He's the the first, right? And so they go to to Aaron saying, make for us gods, right? And in any ideal scenario, you would think, okay, we know how this is going to end. Aaron's going to step in and say, no way. Are you insane, right? That's how ideally it would work, right? But what does Aaron say? Nope, I'll give you what you want. You can have it. I'll make it for you too, right? Aaron, surely we would think would say, no way, but he doesn't. Because even the priesthood in Israel is corrupt. Even Aaron and the priesthood are sinners. And let me just say, here's a lesson in leadership for all of us, church. Follow followers of Jesus don't comply with the shouts of the crowd. We comply with and conform to the words of Jesus. And it may be hard sometimes. It may be really difficult. I'm sure that at the foot of that mountain when the crowds come to Aaron and say, give us a God, make for us something. I'm sure he's thinking, okay, I'm really in a difficult scenario right now. I could give them what they want, they would get off my back and we'd be done with this. Or I could say, no, we're going to follow God. And that would probably lose me a lot of friendships here. Look, church, following the Lord and His instructions and obeying it may cost us some friendships. It may cost us some allies. It may cost us some reputation. But let me just tell you this, it will always be better to obey Jesus rather than obey the crowds when they call you to disobedience. It will always be better to obey Jesus. And so, we comply and conform to the demands of God, not to the demands of crowds. And so, this is what Aaron does. He gives in and he takes the gold that they received from Egypt. This is what the Israelites, this is what they took from Egypt. 
This is what the Egyptians gave them. Hey, take our gold and get out of our town, right? That's what Exodus 12 says. And so he fashions it. He gets a graving tool, fashions it. And then he begins to put the nature and the attributes of Yahweh onto these golden calves, right? These are your gods who saved you. They begin attributing and giving credit that is only deserved of Yahweh. Now let me just show of hands, who loves to do something well, good, accurate, and then the credit be given to somebody else? Yeah, I love that, right? Right? Nobody likes that. And surely the holy God of the universe isn't like that either, right? Not only that, but he attributes God's power and salvation to them, and he builds altars for them, and they begin making offerings and sacrifices to these golden calves. And right now you might be thinking like, whoa, okay, this is a crazy scenario what Israel's doing. This must be a once-in-a-lifetime event, right? This is probably never going to happen again. If we think that about sin, uh, we, we're naive. Because sin, if not killed, it repeats itself. Sin does not dilute over time. Let me just show you this, if you would. I, I, I'd love for you to flip in your Bible with me to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings 12. This is when uh, Rehoboam takes over. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And this tells you just how far Israel has fallen at this time. This is starting in chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then their heart, the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made, what did he make? What did he make? Two, what? Golden calves. Interesting. Of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Hmm. Interesting. Anybody uh, ever heard that story before? Right? This is Exodus 32 all over again. You can flip back to Exodus 32. So if you think that Exodus 32 is a once-in-a-lifetime event in Israel, it'll never happen again. They'll never fall that far. Let me just tell you this. That's not how sin works. If sin is not killed and put to death and repented of, it will continue to repeat itself and repeat itself and repeat itself and repeat itself in Israel's life and in our lives. Right? Paul warns them this same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He quotes Exodus 32 when he says, now these things took place as ex examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Exodus 32. So it's a problem not just for Israel right now in Exodus 32. It's not just a problem for God's people in 1 Kings 12. It's not just a problem for God's people in 1 Corinthians 10. It's a problem for all of us. The sin of idolatry and worshiping other things rather than the Creator is still a problem today. 
And if we think that time will solve our sin problem, it will not. It requires us to place our faith in Christ Jesus, to repent of our sin, and to daily put sin to death. That's how sin works. They go on, and not only do they make you know, sacrifices to this uh, to these golden calves in Exodus 32. Not only do they make altars to it, but he even institutes a feast and celebration to these golden calves, right? Hey, tomorrow we're going we're gonna to celebrate a feast to the Lord. Because when Moses is away, the Israelites will play, as Exodus 32, 6 says. The people, I mean, just this phrase, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word to play there is the same word to laugh. So, man, they're having a good old time in their idolatry, aren't they? Eating and drinking and being merry, right? The people are enjoying themselves. In one fell swoop, they are breaking the first and second commandment that we, re- that we read about in Exodus 20, right? They're breaking both those commandments in one fell swoop. And they are enjoying doing it. Look, y'all, they're not blushing here. You know, you, when you blush, you get embarrassed, you're like, oh, get embarrassed because you, maybe you did something funny or weird. There's no blushing going on here. They're enjoying every minute of it. Jeremiah 6, 15 actually, actually indicts Israel for this very thing. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know even how to blush. This is Israel right here. They're worshiping idols and no one's even blushing about it. They're enjoying it. There's no embarrassment about it at all. Church, let me just ask you this. When you sin, do you take enjoyment in that? Are you embarrassed when you sin? Or do you just keep going on your merry way and it actually might make you feel good? There's no blushing at all involved. I'm fine with sin. Let me just warn us. It's a very dangerous place for Israel to be, and it's a very dangerous place for you to be. That your heart might be getting so hard that you say, oh man, I, it's just sin, it's no big deal. We're enjoying ourselves, everybody's having fun. That's dangerous. It's dangerous for Israel and it's dangerous for us. Be warned, church. Our sin should not bring us any enjoyment. It should bring us embarrassment, but it also should bring us godly grief, what 2 Corinthians 7 says. Godly grief that leads us to repentance. Is your sin bringing you grief, godly grief, that leads you to run to Christ? That's what it should. But Exodus 32 is, it's Genesis 1 through 3 all over again. Right? God is with them. God gives them commandments. Israel breaks it, right? They so quickly revert back to what they saw in Egypt. And it's just a reminder, as one author has said, Just because Israel is geographically out of Egypt, it doesn't mean Egypt is out of them. Now you might be like, what? Well, there's habits and things learned in Egypt, sinful habits, that just because they are geographically, proximity-wise, distance from Israel, it's still deep-rooted in their heart. Egypt is not out of them. Because that's how sin roots itself in us. And so what's God going to do now? They're enjoying themselves. They're giving you know, credit and worship to false idols. What's gonna, God going to do? Is he just going to sit by and just let it be? Well, this is point number two. 
the punishment. This is in verses 7 through 10. The punishment. Uh, maybe if you're a parent in here, if you've ever done this, have you ever heard parents say, or maybe you've ever said this, your child is doing something. Ever, ever done that as a kid? Or as a parent? Your child is doing that. You're saying that to your spouse? Your child, because you want to disassociate yourself with that kid. Hey, my kid, nah, that's Myra's son, not mine. I don't, you know, I was telling, I was talking with Gan the other day because Hayes ate something off the floor. I said, yeah, he spends too much time with Myra. It's not my kid. And uh, Gan understood that that was not true. And so I said, he, he learned that from Myra. Like, we, we do that as parents. We disassociate with our kids when they do something that's not like us or we don't like. Or make, That's your child. Your chi- hey, come get your child right now, Myra, right? We disassociate. That ain't my kid. They get that from you. And what's interesting is that this is God's initial response when he hears about what they're doing, when they're worshiping other idols. Look, in verse, in verse 7, Moses is unaware of what's going on down at the bottom of the mountain, but God's not unaware. He knows. He knows what's going on. And so he instructs Moses to go down to see what's happening. And listen to how he says this in the instruction. The Lord disassociates himself from his people. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for whose people? Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. He's putting it on Moses, right? Up until this point, it's been my people, my people, my people, I, I, I. Now he's saying, your people, Moses. You brought them out. He's disassociating himself, saying, this is serious what they're doing, right? And that God's words here of what he goes down to say isn't, oh, look at that, how cute. They're getting so creative down there make an idol. Oh, because look, hey, I ain't going to be the first one to lie. If you made a statue after me, I would be pretty thankful about it, right? And look, I know it's been in the works for some time now, you know. Um, I told one of our building design team people, I said, you know, it'd be great, uh, you know, a fountain out in the front with me spitting water out like that. But when, because usually people, when you get a statue made after you, you're pretty excited about that. This is not, God's not excited. This is not cute to God. This is not, oh man, hey guys, I get your heart behind this, but you shouldn't have done this. Let's, it's really no big deal, but let's, let's try something, not do that again. That's not how God responds in this situation. God's been very clear with his instructions about how he is to be worshipped, right? No, God actually says this in verse 9. God says, this is a stiff-necked people. This is stiff-necked. Like when an animal doesn't want to go the way that you're trying to pull it, right? Maybe you're walking your dog and your dog's going the other way and you're trying to yank it back. That's what he's describing Israel as. They're trying to constantly go their own way and not follow the way that I have actually planned for them, right? They are stiff-necked, right? They are stubborn, blind, deaf, steadfast, and resolute in being resistant to God and his instructions. They are thick-headed and dense, this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 48.4. Because I know you are obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is brass. Right? Meaning, your, your whole upper, you, you are so dense, you do not understand and get it. 
You're going wayward and you don't even care. Paul will bring this up in his sermon in Acts 7.51. Actually, I'm sorry, Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7.51. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. This problem of resistance to God's instructions, resistance to His will, and resistance to Him continues to be an issue, not just for Israel, but for all of us. This is what sin does. Sin makes us stubborn, makes us defiant, makes us resistant to God. Are you being resistant right now and stubborn to God's instructions? Are you being, as Paul would say about his own self, kicking against the goads? Saying, I know what God wants. I know what He thinks about these things. I just don't care and I don't want to go that way. I don't want to do those things. Sometimes we feel like that. We read God's Word and we read clearly what He says for us to do and how to obey. And we say, no God, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want. It's not my will. It's not my wish for me. What it means to be a follower of the Lord is to say, God's wishes and wills and purposes for my life are actually right and mine are wrong. Right? But that's what sin does. It makes us stiff and resistant. And I would just say this morning, if right now you are kicking against the goads, you are resisting what God has said in His Word, disobedient, resolute in your waywardness, I pray right now that you would see it's only leading and it's on a road to destruction. Repent. Because God's response to rebellion, as He says, God's response to rebellion and sin idolatry is not all that's cute, all that's funny. It's wrath and holy and just anger and perfect justice and righteous anger. Because would it be okay for God to do nothing about this situation? Just ask yourself that question right now. You read Nexus 32, you get to the end of verse 6, and it kind of just ends, right? They're worshiping other idols, they're celebrating them, they're giving attributes to them and characteristics that only God deserves and it just end would it be okay that God does nothing about that it would not it would not be okay because God is perfectly just and righteous and he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin you me we might be complacent about our sin carefree and unconcerned but let me tell you this the God of the Bible is not complacent carefree or unconcerned about our sin right? and I would just ask us this if God isn't complacent about our sin should we be complacent about our sin if God isn't pleased by your sin should you be pleased by your sin God is going to punish Israel for their idolatry, what he says in verses 7 through 10. And why, does he, why is he going to punish them? Well, he says, one, because he is righteous and just, but also because he is faithful. And you might think, how, how is punishing them faithful? Well, just read this, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Now, listen to this. In order that I may make a great nation of you. That's the same language that God promised Abram in Genesis 12. 
right? It's the Abrahamic promise. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And so God is keeping his promises. His promises aren't thwarted by Israel's sin. He's not giving up on what he had planned and purposed for them just because they've given themselves over to idolatry. No, God is going to punish them because he's being faithful to what he said and what he promised, right? He's being faithful to them. But he says this, God says, I'm going to keep my promise, but I'm going to start over with you. He says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, Moses, meaning I'm going to get rid of them and I'm going to start over again with you. Moses. This is similar to what God did in the flood, right? You remember that God saw the nature of the world and of humankind, of humanity, and he said, man, it is just evil. It is just evil. And so he chose Noah and saved him and his family to start a new nation from them. And so that's what God's saying right here. I'm being faithful to my promises, and I'm going to start just from you. Just from you. And so that's what God says. I'm going to punish them, and I'm going to start over and keep my promises. Because God, His promises will not be thwarted by our attempts. God's promises and plans, they will be fulfilled. Is that there is nothing that we can do to thwart the, those plans of God. They will come to fruition. And we can either submit to them now, or on the last day, Every knee will bow in submission to him. Every knee will bow. And so, is God done with Israel at this point? Has he thrown up his hands and said, okay, that's what it's going to be. Is God going to start over? This is what we get to in number three, the petition. Petition. I want you to uh, consider yourself an attorney for one second. Just picture this. Some of you are attorneys or have worked in law, so it won't be hard for you to picture yourselves in this, this role. But consider this, that you're, a, you're an attorney or lawyer who is representing a client charged with murder. So that's your, that's your job. You have to represent them. And here's the evident, evidence that's against your client. There's video footage of them committing the crime. There's, let's say, hundreds of eyewitnesses who said, yeah, we saw him commit the crime. The weapon uh, was found in the possession of your client. The weapon of the crime. Your client is rational, so he can't plead insanity. He's very clearly within his mind. And on top of all that, all that evidence, your client said, yeah, I did it. I did it. Yeah, I, I killed the guy. But I still want to go free. Right? And so... You as an attorney, as a lawyer, as a representative, what's your defense? What are you going to say? How are you going to represent this guy? Clearly, he's guilty, right? I mean, look, there's no, evidence, there's no evidence to say that he's not guilty. All the evidence says he's guilty. Even he says he's guilty. And I wonder if this is how Moses feels right now. When he's got this people, Israel, and he comes and he intercedes for them to God on their behalf. But what is Moses going to say? He's been given the job of representative to intercede on Israel's behalf. But what is he going to say about these people? I don't have anything good to say about them, right? How is he going to petition God on their behalf? Because what would have been the easiest thing for Moses to do at this point 
is to say when God said, I'm going to consume them in my wrath, man, look, if I were Moses, I, don't, I hope this doesn't say anything bad about me, I'd say, yeah, you should probably do it. Yeah. Uh, like, I can't, I, yeah, I can't, I can't represent them. Like, I, they're, they're on their own, right? That would have been me. I would say, yeah, do it. That's a great idea. Make a nation from me, right? But no, he steps in. Moses steps in and intercedes on Israel's, uh, Israel's behalf. Just as Abraham, if you remember in Genesis 18, just as Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that story? Is that basically God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham steps in and says, hey, 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 hey. It's like a bad car salesman deal. Hey, let's say this. If you find 100 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, what, will you show mercy? Will you not, not consume them? And God's like, yeah, you find 100 people. Yeah, sure. Oh, okay, okay, okay. what about oh, 50? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'll take 50. Ooh, 30? I'll take 30. Oh, 20? I'll take 20. Uh, how about this? How about this? One. Yeah, if you can find one person, then yeah, I'll spare him. What ultimately happens in Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole, the whole intercession is basically to show everyone is corrupt there. But this is what Abraham does. He intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, and also Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. But what is he going to say to God on their behalf? Because they're clearly guilty. What Moses doesn't say is this. Hey, look, God, there's some good, they're good people at heart. They're really nice. They've done some right things. They're, they're generous. They're, uh, you know, they, they're, they're philanthropists. They, 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 they got some good traits about them. I know, yeah, they're worshiping other gods. They got made all the idols. But, they, but they're good people. Yeah, they, they got a good heart, right? They got a good, good heart, right? Moses doesn't say anything about their merit. He didn't say anything about their character. He didn't say anything about their inherent goodness because he knows that none of that would be true. What he does say is that he talks about God to God. He talks about God to God. He brings up God's character, God's promises. He, remind, he reminds as if God has forgotten these things. Just FYI, here's the caveat. What, what uh, Moses is saying to God, it's not like God has forgotten or he needs remembering. This is intercession. It's saying things that are true on behalf of the people that are, he's interceding on behalf of. And so what he says is this. He turns and says, yeah, God, I know you said that they're my people, but I'm going to say this to you in verse 11. Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you brought out? No, it wasn't me. It was you, God. Israel's your people. Israel is God's people. That's what he says. That's one of the things. God has displayed his perfect power by saving them out of Egypt. That's another thing that Moses brings up. Not only are there your people, but you have shown your mighty hand in saving them, declaring your glory to all the nations. Not only that, what will your reputation be, O oh God, among the Egyptians when they begin to talk about you? What will be your reputation? And lastly, he ends on this. Remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. The promises that you made them. And so what does God do after he petitions the Lord? It says in verse 14, and the Lord relented. Meaning that God showed them mercy, mercy that they did not deserve. 
God showed them grace because what they clearly deserved was God's wrath and punishment. But He withholds He withholds judgment on them. And God has shown Himself to be like this all across the Bible. If you remember in Jonah with the Ninevites, right? He proclaimed judgment on them and God withholds judgment and shows them mercy and grace. Right? Moses' intercession may have saved their lives, but ultimately it was God. It was God who showed them mercy. Church, let me just say this. Exodus 32 still exists for us today. We are still a people who sin. We give ourselves over to the worship of things made by human hands. We give credit to things that deserve no credit. And because of this, because we are this wayward people, this people that are given to idolatry, is that we deserve punishment just like Israel. Idolaters must be punished for their sins. This is, our, this is our state. We are a people who constantly give ourselves over to the idols of this world. And God is still the same, that He is still the God who punishes idolatry and for giving His glory to another. But He is still the God who shows mercy and grace to sinners. And that when we have an, intercess, an intercessor who comes and petitions on our behalf, He listens and He shows and thank God that in Christ Jesus, He is the one who intercedes on our behalf. This is what the Scriptures testify to. Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 12 says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. Romans 8, 34 who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Praise God that we are a wayward people who are sinners, that we have a just God who punishes sins, but praise God that he's a merciful God who gives an intercessor in his son, Christ Jesus to plead on our behalf. That is the only hope that we have in this world. On the last day, we will all stand before the judge of all the earth. Will you stand as an idolater with none to represent you and none to intercede on your behalf? Let me just say, that will end very badly in eternal judgment. Or, will you stand with the intercessor by your side in the righteousness that he gives, who lives to intercede on your behalf? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that will end in abundant life. This morning, you can have one who will petition and intercede before a holy God for you. This morning, you can leave with the righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus by placing your faith in Him and repenting of your sins, turning away from your idolatry and taking refuge in Christ. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and kindness that you give us in your Son, Christ. I pray, Lord, right now that we do have hope in this world because we do have an intercessor who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near, who is interceding on our behalf. I pray this morning for those who are in Christ who do have an intercessor that now they would understand, that we would all understand that, God, we must fight idolatry because it creeps into our lives so deceptively. I pray for those this morning who do not have Christ, who are still in their idolatry, that they would see that they have put their hope in vain, worthless idols that can give them no hope and no satisfaction in this world. Let them run to the true image of God, Christ Jesus. It's in His name we pray these things. Amen.